Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica. I'm a professor here at the University of New Hampshire in the Department of Health Management and Policy. And this month, I'm joined by two of our students here in the department. If you guys would like to introduce yourselves. My name is Shana Murphy. I'm a senior in the Health Management and Policy program here at UNH, and I'm from Dover, New Hampshire. I'm Bridget Carrier. I'm a junior here at the University in the Health Management Policy program, and I'm from Prescott, Maine. Great. Who did you guys talk to? So we talked to Steve Kasabian, who's the Chief Administrative Officer over at Maine Medical Partners. All right. And what did you guys learn from uh, your conversation with Steve? So I've had the opportunity to intern at Maine Medical Partners, and so I've gotten to know Steve over the last couple years. He's an alumni from our program, and it's been very cool to see how he's grown over the last several years and the path he's taken, doing various things in consulting and taking this role as a chief administrative officer. So I also had the opportunity to do my internship at Maine Medical Partners, and I had been able to meet with Steve uh, before doing the interview and I really liked being able to see his path. Some executives now have started in different careers and then found their way into healthcare, where Steve, coming from our program, went right into healthcare. So being a senior and going out into the workforce soon, it was nice seeing someone with a path throughout the healthcare industry. Great. I want to say thanks to the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives for their continuing sponsorship of our program here. And if you are listening to this podcast, would you please take a moment to leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really helps other people find us. And now let me turn you over to Shana and Bridget, who are interviewing Steve Kasabian. Welcome to the Forge, Steve. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. You attended the University of New Hampshire and obtained a Bachelor of Science in Health Administration and Planning, which is now Health Management and Policy. Why did you choose UNH and when did you know what you wanted to study? Okay. Well, I chose UNH. I grew up in Dover, New Hampshire. Uh, my dad went to UNH, so I had a, a sort of intention from the beginning to want to go to school where he did. I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I started as an engineer, mechanical engineer, and spent actually three years in mechanical engineering before changing my major to health man to uh, health administration and planning, as it was named back then. So that was kind of the track, and then the rest of it is history. So, what internship experiences did you have at UNH, and how did it affect your career? Um, a lot. So as I look back as to, you know, how I got here and the paths that got created for me, um, my internship was actually at Exeter Hospital. In that vintage of time, that was a, a coveted internship. It just was one of the ones folks wanted. And I matched up well with the assistant administrator at the time, probably be called the COO today. Tom Sager was his name. And it was really that a combination of time I spent with Tom and then subsequently time that I was afforded to work in their business office that following summer that led me to have a bunch of experiences and meet people that later on were a series of handoffs in my in my career. And so it really genuinely started at Exeter Hospital um, and just sort of grew from there. So many of your colleagues in similar positions had more untraditional roots into the healthcare industry. What influenced you to pursue a direct path into health administration instead of a more general business administration degree? Um, so, you know, transparency is my middle name, and we'll use that word a lot as we go through this go through this series of questions. The 
at the time that I was looking to make a change from engineering to something, something not defined, um, I did what all good sons would do. I called up my mother and I said, I've got to change my major. You know me best. What should I do? And my dad is a dentist, was a practicing dentist at the time. So I grew up in a professional kind of or career or orientation with a lot of doctors and dentists around, it seemed, all the time. But uh, she pointed me at uh, healthcare administration because the, the administrator of Wentworth Douglas Hospital had just had an appointment with my dad and was walking out the door and she said, gee, you know, that seems like a pretty good career. And <laughs> it was literally that little kick that at least started me down a path of having a conversation or two about what is this thing called healthcare administration. So I, I wish it were uh, more intriguing than that, but it isn't. <laughs> After graduating in 1981, you obtained a job at Goodall Hospital as an office manager. Tell us about Goodall Hospital and what your responsibilities were there. Yeah. So Goodall is, uh, is, was the classic small community hospital uh, servicing the needs of a population. I think at the time it probably didn't reach 20,000 people. It's like 14,000 some odd people. And very, very old hospital with a lot of roots in the community and a lot of pride in delivering health care there. I happened to know the CFO from Exeter Hospital and uh, had spent that time working in the business office in Exeter, so afforded the opportunity to at least come talk to them about an open position. In when I got that position, it put me responsible for the billing office registration, admitting the emergency room registration, information systems, and the switchboard. And looking back on it, I always thought they were nuts to give this kid that much responsibility, but they did. So I had a pretty broad, you know, array of responsibilities. It was a small hospital. I, I'm not going to remember how many beds at that point in time. I think it was a 40 or 50 bed hospital. So not a big enterprise, but looked big to me coming coming into it. So. How did your experience at UNH prepare you to be in a management role directly out of college? Um, so that it, this is one of the, the harder questions because um, the, the honest answer is I don't, I don't know that it directly does. To me, the answer lies in the experiences you get afforded in internships give you that exposure. So a little bit of this is things you see and do as an intern, people you meet as an intern, uh, all influence sort of how you view the world as a manager. I'm, I, I took a huge number of cues from Tom Sager. God rest his soul, Tom passed away. But his style, I wanted to emulate. And he and I were similar in personality, but I watched him navigate Exeter Hospital and know everyone and talk to everyone. And I said, that's what I want to do. That's how I'm going to you know, lead my life in, in, in this career. And so I feel like it, while the classroom doesn't necessarily teach you to be a manager, you got to live that, it sets you up to sort of see the people who do it well, or at least from my perception, we're doing it well, and created sort of a springboard for me to say, okay, I'm a, I watch, I see, I do. So um, that's, 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 that's how I would connect the two. What was it like having so much responsibility in the first step of your career? Um, 
I was not smart enough to know that I was had so much responsibility that I shouldn't have. Um, it, it was all new to me, and I, you know, again, I was more about people. I continue to be about people in relationships, so I was afforded an opportunity to learn this stuff. I, you know, what did I know about switchboards or data processing or those sorts of things? Really, very little. We didn't even have PCs on campus when I went to school. So you can imagine, you know, the leap here. But, um, you know, re reflecting back on it, I everyone that's ever asked me about that, I say, I, I can't believe they let me, you know, gave me the keys to that thing at, at the age that I was. But, um, you know, I spent three years and they didn't kick me out. So I was doing a couple of things right. And it was truly foundational to everything that I know how to do and again I'm a key component of my sort of career path but. after Goodall Hospital you moved into consulting with Ernst and Young in 1985 what influenced you to leave Goodall and take on a different role in the healthcare industry a um, couple of things the uh, we were in the middle of doing some big consulting projects with Ernst and Winnie and I had met some individuals who worked there because they were looking for data and I was providing them that data and quite by happenstance, I, in the hallway, bumped into the, uh, at that time, senior manager in charge of consulting, went on to be the partner in charge of consulting in Portland, who I grew up with in Dover a few years ahead of me, but Bill Karen, who sits as our CEO of Maine Health now. And so Bill and I talked briefly, and it sort of turned into an introduction that got made to at least investigate if I was interested in in helping them with some consulting needs they had specifically in billing related areas revenue cycle but so it was really kind of these little connections that i made very casually but the notion of it intrigued me uh, to no end um, thought i could learn a lot by doing it and um, consulting to a young to a young guy looked looked pretty exciting so can you talk about the role of a consultant and the industry itself at the time? Yeah. Um, it was a big deal back then. I imagine it still is, but I've lost track of it. But in those days and times, offices, where the office was located, really defined what your market was. So for Portland, Maine, we served the Maine marketplace and, and part of New Hampshire because there was not really a consulting practice in the Manchester office. So I worked in... I think over the course of my years there, every hospital in Maine doing something, something ranging from revenue cycle stuff to cost accounting to we did a lot of uh, financial feasibility studies to, you know, for big building projects and things like that. So that was me in my car every day traveling around to someplace new and lots of overnights and occasionally I would get farmed out to other offices because I had some skill set they didn't have. So I'd go to Dayton, Ohio or Boston or somewhere to, to help them do some work and be part of a bigger project team. So um, really very, it was great work, very exciting. So how did your experiences prepare you for a job as a consultant? Um, I could talk the talk because I got taught well. So I understood the business, I understood the industry. I understood from the experiences in the internship, go back to that, how to have a, create a relationship with a new person or new people, because I was doing that over the course of my internship. And consulting is all about sort of landing on the ground as the person that 
folks are most skeptical can really help them, and then quickly developing a relationship to prove to that individual that you A, know what you're talking about, and B, are genuinely there to help and not just to send them a bill. So there's a lot of relationship and consulting that then turns into real work that you do, but it starts and ends by having a good relationship with a client. And I feel like all that stuff was stacked in my favor and I could talk, you know, in an educated way about what the industry is all about and work that I had done either in the internship or at Goodall Hospital. And so I was a fairly credible person in the room and I watched and listened a lot and watched people do a good job at this. Is there someone or somewhere specific that helped you learn how to create those relationships or become good at listening? My dad is is expert at this. It's that's the person who most most influences the way I interact with people. He doesn't differentiate between anyone of any status and he engages every person he talks to with the end game being having a new friend. And so I watched that growing up and I watched him in his professional world be the you know the ambassador of all situations. <laughs> When some folks couldn't get along, my dad was in the middle of making sure everything worked well. So uh, largely that. And then, you know, I had mentioned Tom Sager earlier. Just Tom had an exceptionally good way about him and being able to take a thorny situation and, and absolutely diffuse it. And he knew everyone on a first-name basis. And I was just amazed by the fact that he could know so many people and know what was going on in their families and take the time to stop and talk to them. And I hold that out as probably the biggest influence in how I do business today or how I've done business the past 30 years. So what did you enjoy most about consulting? Um, I enjoyed the variety of work. I knew nothing about most of the stuff I started doing aside from the revenue cycle and billing because that's what I came from and they brought me to do. The, the first time I sat down and did a financial feasibility study, uh, had no idea how to do a financial feasibility, what it even meant. Um, found myself in rooms with attorneys and, and uh, auditors and accountants, you know, pouring over tons and tons of data and trying to represent, ultimately represent to a, to a bunch of investors whether or not we should float a bond to build a, you know, wing of a hospital kind of thing. So, um, Every time I went through a cycle of consulting, I learned something dramatically new. Cost accounting, didn't know anything about cost accounting, learned how, what that meant and how to do it. Um, and then ultimately, another individual in the firm and I started a physician practice, consulting practice buried within because the industry had gotten to the point where physicians were asking for help in their businesses before they, they didn't ask for it, they didn't think they needed it. Uh, maybe they didn't need it. Uh, so that gave me an opportunity to sort of create my own niche or with this other tax accountant. And, uh, but every, every two or three years, it was new. There was very new work to do that was exciting. Uh, so how is it different being a senior manager at a consulting firm compared to your other experiences in healthcare? Um, once you reach the level of senior manager, it's less about doing the work and more about managing all the work. In all candor, it was not as interesting and not as exciting because what you were really managing was the engagement 
and how much money you made on the engagement and how many hours people were spending doing it, and much less about sitting with a client and talking about how to help them solve their business problems. So it was ironic in that as I progressed in the company, I got farther and farther away from doing the stuff I liked to do because I got farther and farther away from sitting with with clients and working on you know real material. So not a bad thing, and it's it's just a break point for folks in that industry. They either stay in it with the goal of becoming then a partner in the firm, or they jump back into the industry and, and work in industry like I did. So. In 1992, you became the practice administrator of four gynecological associates in South Portland. What pushed you to go back into direct practice management? Um, that was an opportunity for me to, what I had learned, so I'll back up, what I had learned when we started the consulting practice for physicians was that unlike everything else we consulted in for the hospitals, this was real money because it was turning into real paychecks for individuals, doctors. And uh, it was actually Bill Karen, because when he was running the consulting group, who said, Steve, this is different. When you make a rounding adjustment on a pro forma or a bond issue for Keene Hospital, um, that takes you know tens of thousands of dollars off the table because we just round it to make it simple. That tens of thousands of dollars in a paycheck for a doctor is highly material. So you you have to change your perspective on what a dollar means. And I that intrigued me. Maybe it just because again I grew up in a home like that. But the notion of worrying about somebody's paycheck and making sure that I was helping them be successful just was a spark that it really you know caught my attention and the ability to sort of drive me down even closer to the ground and work with physicians that you know were really sweating you know five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars or even one thousand dollars just was intriguing to me so the opportunity to go to gyn associates was was that in spades it was a private group it lived and died on its financials and was progressive at the time and that they wanted an administrator uh, who had the sort of business background I did. That was unusual in that vintage of time. It was mostly people who grew up in the practices who either had stayed, so they stayed long enough to run it, or they had some aptitude to make sure that the staff didn't kill each other, you know. So I I'm being a little facetious, but there wasn't a whole bunch of business background that commonly came. And so um, they were progressive in that they specifically wanted that. So it was a good match. Gynecological Associates was a practice of six physicians. How is managing your own practice different than being a manager in a hospital? It's it's back to the bottom line. So when we did things that uh, were successful or created success in terms of financial outcome, that was money that was then available directly to those doctors to distribute, you know, distribute to them at the end of the year, or for them to reinvest in their business. It's not as clear a line when you work in a big organization like MMP or a hospital. Those dollars that you drive to your bottom line because you did something well or fate worked in your favor don't find their name and their way to a particular individual or name. They find their way to the you know, corporate coffers of the facility to benefit all the patients in the community. So it's it's not bad, it's just different. It has a different feel. 
you facilitated your first merger between gynecological associates and another OBGYN practice in 1995, which became Coastal Women's Health. What experience helped you lead this partnership? Uh, relationship management. So I had to take the, you know, the dogs and the cats and the various personalities in the room. Um, not that they, they were a group of folks who didn't get along, but they, were, they had very different perspectives about how to run their businesses, and they ran them differently. So, but they had one common goal, which was that the future of medical practice was bigger, not smaller groups. Um, so leveraging that and leveraging the ability to sort of help people find common ground and um, connect themselves relationship-wise was really the... That was the strength I brought to it. The, the business side of it was almost going to happen and was relatively easy uh, with or without me. But it was more about finding personality connections that got people energized that, hey, this is a better idea than we thought it was. And it did ultimately come together. It was a very successful in the long run. So. How did it come about during this time you also assisted with the formation of Maine Medical Center's Physician Hospital Organization, which is now known as Maine Medical Partners, and why do you feel you were chosen? Yeah, so the the ultimate, the Maine Medical Center PHO really went on to become, in its most current state, Maine Health ACO, where Maine Medical Partners, we reserved to name the name for the medical group, but... The question's still valid. The the PHO, uh, well, the predecessor to the PHO was us sitting around a table with a bunch of private practice physicians and saying, do you guys have an interest in creating an organization that will do contracting for you? Seems like a simple question because in today's world, most people would raise their hand and say, sure, we don't have the bandwidth or the talent to do it. Back then... That was not the case. Um, I don't know that bandwidth existed, but talent did in the forms of physicians who knew how to wrangle with the insurance companies, did a pretty good job of it, and could negotiate one-on-one with the insurance companies successfully because those insurance companies were smaller and less sophisticated than they are today. So we we brought a table of 20, at least 20, maybe 25 doctors together from different groups in this town, all of which were private groups, to start talking about how we would do this together and what concessions everyone would have to make for it to work well. And it was extremely challenging. We, we actually hired an attorney out of North Carolina to come help us do it because as much as we wanted to do it, we didn't even know if we were defining it accurately. It was so new in the industry. So it was a combination of my ability. I, I knew the physicians by this time. I had had exposure to a lot of them in the community, even just working at GYN Associates. And Bill Karen at that time, my prior boss from Ernst & Winnie, had gone on to be the CFO of May Medical Center and said, hey, we'll get Steve to come help us do this. So again, it goes back to connections uh, that you make in your career that you know create new opportunities that created a new one uh, for me. So. Did your experience with the merger prepare you to assist in the creation of a PHO? Not so much. I would say that it was new ground for all of us. The PHO work was so different and so 
um, without comparison in the state. No one else had done it yet, which is why we had to reach out to an attorney in North Carolina that we couldn't find anyone in the state of Maine, despite the number of law firms in, in greater Portland, which were considerable. Uh, no one had the experience to sit down and put one of these things together. We were crashing up against all kinds of worries that we had that the federal government would look at a bunch of doctors, private doctors sitting at a table trying to figure out how to contract together. You can imagine. Um, so there was anxiety about that. Um, so we were really trying to almost uh, interpret very loosely written laws to build this thing. And Maine Medical Center, by definition, and it continues today, is a very conservative organization, meaning it it tends to want to be in a very safe spot when it does things, especially new things. That's a good place to be. Um, and so we were, we, were, we were out on the edge of trying to interpret what this really meant and uh, let alone do it well so that it survived the test of time. We don't like to start things and end them. Um, we usually try to do it right the first time if we can. So, In 1995, you left Coastal Women's Health and you joined the Management Service Organization of Maine Health. What was the purpose of this new department? Well, so I came, the, I was asked to come and actually start it. So, um, And I didn't know at the time what an MSO was. And so in sitting down and listening to the pitch on this, it was uh, very much about trying to meet two groups' needs, two constellation of physicians needs one was physicians employed at Maine Medical Center relatively small number who were working in departments of Maine Med and feeling not very well attended to then there were groups in the community who said we need help running our business and or we want to merge together and we don't know how to do that and we think the outcome is going to be something bigger than we know how to manage so it was that group, that second group, that had identified MSOs as the, a potential way to solve the problem. And it was really that leverage point that created the interest by the medical center to start one of these, one of these management service organizations. So um, I came with precious little understanding of what an MSO was, but we, we actually hired a consultant to help us write a business plan and uh, develop, you know, sort of a path to starting this thing, and that's really what ultimately turned into this medical group. But it, it started as a business model, a business management company. So, what was your role in starting the MSO? I was employee one, <laughs> so I was brought to run it, to start it, and run it. Um, so, start it meant work with the attorneys and consultants to literally build it. We had to go get benefits. We had to, you know, create a company from uh, scratch to find employees who would be the leadership of that organization. So I recruited them, and then to turn it on, which we did in roughly six months' time, with the physicians that were in the group at either at Maine Medical Center at the time or the interested private groups. Yeah, so that was my that was my job initially. Can you describe the organization as it was in 1995? Yeah. We had 60 physicians, I think, roughly, about 250 employees when we turned it on. And we really, uh, our central office, I think, was, you know, six people as compared to what you roam around here in and uh, what exists in the CBO, et cetera. So, but it, 
it focused on three big chunks of business. It focused on employing staff and charging them back to practices. So we were a leasing company. We filed with the state to be a main state leasing company so we could do that. It focused on uh, billing and information systems for the practices. So we, everybody had a different system, or in some cases they had no system. They used paper uh, records, paper billing cards. And then the third thing was to manage it. So we had man- the managers all reported up through you know, operations folks, and we were responsible for making sure that we managed the day-to-day and did their budgets and their financial statements and sort of all the stuff you'd think of as management. And we build each practice for those three pieces of business and ran it that way for 10 years. What was your relationship like with the physicians? I was learning, uh, learning about them and building trust. So uh, some of them I had met during the process of forming it, but for the most part I hadn't met any of these 60 doctors. And so I was the business guy who was coming in to take advantage of them. Um, and so it took you know, a good number of years to literally cycle through and meet folks and prove to them that our intent was good and that we were actually going to bring them to higher ground, meaning, you know, offer their staff better benefits or do a better job managing their offices. And really that my worry, my worry day to day was about their success and nothing else. So that's, I spent years doing that and creating trust. What challenges arose when bringing together a group of multi-specialty practices? Uh, Many. So we declared victory in 2004 when we uh, sort of restructured our organization and put the physicians and the the management company together and called ourselves a multi-specialty group and um, quite a bit of high-fiving going on in the room or, you know, a lot of happy folks that we had finally reached this milestone Upon reflection, it was little more than day one of the how many ever days there will be journey uh, to create the true multi-specialty group. So we had on paper reshuffled the deck and at least created a construct for people to think about being a multi-specialty group, but we hadn't done anything to actually make a multi-specialty group be that. Um, so that's that's the that has been will be the challenge and for as long as I do this, and I suspect people behind me do this, is sort of creating the esprit de corps, the, the worry that a physician has about a colleague who does something completely different than he or she does, but worrying about the endpoint. That's the heaviest lifting of all. Organizations that do a good job of that, they are the stars. We got a long ways to go. So what does it mean to be a multi-specialty group as opposed to a single specialty group? Well, it means that we take a wide, in our case, a wide variety of specialists and primary care physicians and we glue them together or we try to glue them together in a way that makes them think about caring for a patient longitudinally. So in the past world, call it the pre-multi-specialty group practice world, which was the common world in the vast part of the country, um, Patients were subject to figuring out how to navigate that themselves. So I have my primary care physician, and he or she might send me off to the cardiologist who will 
send me back and then send me in another direction and another direction. Hub and spoke. Um, wasn't even that sophisticated. Uh, multi-specialty group, the real purpose of it, if you dig below all of the economics and benefit maybe that comes with scale, is to say we own the patient's life, we own their responsibility for their care, so we take care of all of that traffic control. Patients don't worry about that stuff. We worry about it for them and get them to just the right person at just the right time. As you mentioned, in 2004, the organization decided to integrate all the practices as one entity, creating main medical partners. How did your role change under this new system? Um, at that point, I, I moved from being the executive director, I think it was my title, of the management company to the president of the medical group. And there was some discussion at that time about, is this the right model? Do we, um, do we take this opportunity to find a physician to be the president of the medical group? And we'll figure out something for Steve to do. But it, we were, I think, young enough in our growth curve. And I, I'm not going to remember the exact numbers. But I think at that point in time, we might have been 100 or 120 physicians. The real growth hadn't happened yet. Um, and... I had spent 10 years, you know, cultivating these relationships. So people were pretty confident with dealing with Steve, that I was the familiar face. Um, the notion of dropping somebody new into the mix, doctor or otherwise, was less appealing than leaving the non-physician in the role of president. So that became the transition for me to, to the um, multi-specialty group position. For the next several years, MMP actively acquired the majority of the practices it has now. Can you describe the process that MMP uses to decide whether or not to acquire or open a practice? So it's changing. Um, our initial um, our initial process was re very much reactionary, uh, and I think this, if if folks are honest across the country, they would say that's probably how all these groups came to be the hospital employed groups. Um, to some extent, it's preserving your market and there was less about that for us we didn't have competition in our marketplace for groups we didn't have another hospital trying to buy a group that we wanted to acquire for example what we did have was the risk that physicians were going to leave the community altogether so our neurosurgeons were the first to kind of come and ask about membership in our group um, and the real fear at the time was if something didn't change in their business and they didn't end up with some help supporting their practice, uh, that they were simply going to break up and go to different corners of the country. Uh, and they were very, uh, very mobile folks. And so the idea that there could be no neurosurgeons in Portland, Maine, was frightening um, to Maine Medical Center and to the patients, I mean. So that's, that was the introduction. Over the course of time, there was less and less of that and more and more of, is this a group we need in our multi-specialty group? How, how, how much do we have to worry about the services not being provided? That sort of thing. What cultural benefits exist when we bring this group in or not? How oriented are they to, to us versus you know maintaining their sort of, we like to be employed, but we'll run our own show perspective? And there was a lot of discussions like that where we had to look people in the eye and say, we're going to tell you it's, going to, it's different. The decisions you make today because you own it 
a lot of those go away because you're part of a bigger thing and others will help you make those decisions and they might not always be the ones you'd make. Um, so we got better at having the conversation and better about prioritizing that over, oops, we better buy this group because if we don't, they're going to leave. What issues were you faced with acquiring this many practices in such a short period of time? We ran out of bandwidth. <laughs> we ran out of hours. They're a lot of work. It's a lot of work to bring a group on. Months and months of getting to know you meetings and uh, learning about what's important to those groups, learning about what they worry about day by day as far as their employees or their paychecks or services that they want to render or want to keep rendering that maybe we don't know if we want them to keep rendering in their offices, developing new programs. It's a very long, exhaustive process, and we were doing them. In some cases, we were they were overlapping, and so we were in the process of acquiring more than one group at once, and we simply didn't have enough people to do the pro formas or to be over there doing due diligence or be in, en you know, be in enough rooms because there's many meetings that kind of spawn out of this stuff. So mostly just bandwidth. Other than that, it was fun. In 2012, MMP was nearing 500 physicians and you decided it was time to also recruit a physician president. You then developed a dyad structure and took on the role of chief administrative officer. Can you explain this leadership style and why MMP chose to go with this untraditional route? Yep. Um, so when we get up to, at that time, probably not quite 500, call it 400 physicians, we said, we looked at each other and said, well, we talked about this before. There was going to be some crossroad in terms of the size of the group and or its needs at that time that was going to drive us towards, that would drive us towards needing a physician leader which was the common model. You know, we would look across the country at groups of that size and certainly bigger and almost exclusively see physician presidents. So it wasn't a surprise that we were having the conversation, not to me anyway. The chief administrator role was, was actually a decision that our CEO of the hospital, um, an idea he came up with, um, we were leaning in the direction of a chief operating officer, but that didn't seem to be a good fit because we wanted to take all of the business stuff, including finance and all of that, and keep it under that one person. And that was a curious fit for a COO. So uh, Rich actually came up with a title of chief administrative officer um, to try to broaden the responsibilities. And um, I told people that I didn't care what they called me. As long as I got to come to work, I'd be, I'd be okay. But um, so it was really Rich's uh, foresight on, you know, looking out and, and talking to some of his contemporaries in big, big organizations who said, well, we actually have these CAOs and this is why we have them and um, describing that to him that created that title or that opportunity for that title. So what was it like being half of a dyad? Uh, it's great. I mean, that's our, that model we permeates our organization completely. So we rely on teams of physicians and administrators to work closely together and make good decisions. What it means is that if, if you match up well, it works really well. And if you don't, it's really, really hard because you are truly kind of, you're almost operating as one brain 
on topics, which is challenging when you're, you're not in the same sort of intellectual space or perspective space as, as your colleague. I personally, I, I, we're very late to this, meaning how we didn't figure out 20, 30, 40 years ago that this was the way to do business is almost embarrassing. Um, we were trying to run giant clinical enterprises or even modest or small medical groups. How did you ever think you were going to do that without having a partner that was a physician and an administrator? Um, so that we got, finally got there was a good thing, but um, it's, um, it didn't take long. It didn't take long to learn how to do it. Now it's just a matter of sort of matching the right people up. It's, it's chemistry. How are the responsibilities divided between you and the president? Well, for the most part, anything that sort of fits in a business space, I use that word generically, but a non-clinical space sort of neatly lines under my responsibility. There are still a lot of things I do that some folks would view as clinical, quote-unquote. An example might be I spend a lot of time interacting with physicians and physician leaders more from the perspective of making sure that we are doing a good job meeting their needs. And to do that, I, I nudge into clinical discussions a lot, program development, stuff like that. But for the most part, it's a, it's a clean separation around you manage the docs, I manage everybody else, and we'll come together and talk about that. In the end, the president, because it has to be fun, you know, to function properly, gets to make the final decision. So if we're not in agreement or we can't decide what the right thing to do is, I, I defer to the president, to the physician president for decision making. So, But not too many occasions where that was necessary tended to be pretty much in lockstep. In your experience, what were the pros and cons of a diet leadership? Uh, pros, we get the best decisions because we have the best minds in the room representing needs of patients. Cons, it forces the organization to think very carefully about who those dyads are. It, it, it doesn't just happen because the org chart says it's a dyad. It happens when the chemistry happens. And that's hard. Tell us a little bit about MMP and the major services it provides. So we continue this many years later to the, it, those three buckets of work that I described. We keep that's really largely what we do today. Difference being that we bear the responsibility ultimately for the success of the enterprise, the bottom line of the medical group, where before we were really a charge to the medical group. So I, I only had to worry about doing a good job managing them, not necessarily what their budget ended up, or how they ended up looking against budget. So, you know, we're very focused on our budget. We're focused on... Um, was certainly focused on meeting needs of patients, developing new programs, helping our doctors do that, finding markets that we should be in that we aren't in where patients need us to be. The We continue to do an ever more so work with other main health hospital medical groups because the main health system looks at MMP as sort of the big anchor store of physician practice management. And the other hospitals that have little versions of MMP 
don't have the access to the people we do or the talent in forms of analysts and other folks that we are blessed to have. And so we do a lot of work in that regard, helping our colleagues and little communities manage their medical groups or we develop collateral and we give it to them and say, hey, we've we figured out how to do this here, take this, do this. And I, that's one of the most rewarding parts of this job. I, I love doing that. So. What does the organization look like currently and what do you hope it will look like in the future? So the organization currently is in flux, as you ladies may know, um, in that we're in between presidents. And so our first president, first physician president, was here uh, four years or so. We've now been in an active search about to uh, move into some final round of interviews. So we're excited about that with some great candidates. I bring all this up because I think a the physician president will set a huge tone in terms of what things we worry about in the next five years. And it might be, you know, highly oriented to creating a tighter culture, or it might be highly oriented to growth and outreach, or it might be both of those things. But so we're, we're a bit in that space you get into when you, and you know a new leader is coming, but you don't know who and what their bias necessarily is. But everyone's excited about that. They're excited about, you know, someone new at the wheel and take any of those challenges are exciting to us. We just don't, we don't know what path we get led down. So, but future, the future, I think ultimately will be one that takes main medical partners and puts it, combines it with the other medical groups in our health system to create one big medical group. Much easier said than done. Mechanically, it's probably not all that challenging to do. That's a bit of an understatement, but the real challenge is, you know, if, if we think culturally it's hard for MMP to figure out how to beat MMP, imagine what it is when you have five or six versions of it trying to figure out how to be main health medical group. Um, but I do believe that's our future. I will be uh, almost amazed if we don't end up with a single medical group. And I think we have to go there because our physicians work so closely together in all these communities, the notion that they aren't par- on the same team, I think gets in our way from time to time. So it's, it's, an, easy, it's an easy barrier to knock down. Got to figure it out. How many people directly report to you? Uh, I never think of it that way. Not too many. So I have managed to, maybe Tom Sager is right, the farther I got out of my career, the less I had to do. I have three folks here in the, in the MMP who report to me to really pick up the big baskets of my responsibilities, so finance and operations. And then I do a lot of work with the facilities people because I just spend a lot of time in facilities um, management and building new buildings, stuff like that. Uh, and then there are shared services, central billing office, IT, human resources, that have folks in them that lead those that I manage those relationships with. So the earliest versions of our medical group, those folks were embedded in MMP and reported to me. Now I, while they don't report to me, I manage the connection to them senior to senior. So that's mostly what fills my dance card as far as people goes, is those six people. What does the administrative team at MMP look like, and how is it unique from other healthcare entities? 
Um, it probably looks very similar to most entities structurally. I don't think we're doing anything too too wild and crazy in the org chart. Um, the the advantage we have uh, over everyone uh, that I've ever talked to is that our folks come and stay. So the senior leaders of this organization, uh, myself and Monica and Ken and Jeff, for example, that crowd of leaders for our sort of big buckets of business, collectively have over 80 years of experience just at MMP. No one else describes anywhere near that kind of uh, maturity of and, and consistency in leadership. So that's a defining difference for us. It's part of what it's part of what propels us with the docs because they deal with familiar faces, people they trust and know. It makes my job really easy because I'm dealing with people that I trust and know and have worked with for so many years. So that's a distinguishing feature. That's the that's the thing I would least want to give up of all things. How do you work with the other senior leaders to be, to develop MMP's long-term strategy? We um, we largely rely on, and this is more recent than past, but because of our connection to Maine Medical Center, and then and then also to Maine Health, less so, but through Maine Medical Center, we rely on Maine Med to direct what we pay attention to, to say it simply. So, at the medical center, we develop all the strategy, things we're going to worry about, things we're going to develop, our our um, mission statement, for example, to be the healthiest state in the nation, that that emanates largely from the medical center because it's the clinical core. And so each year as we develop our AIP and say we're going to worry about smoking cessation or opiate addiction or whatever the things are, those cascade right to us. We Rather than us develop strategy, we take that as strategy and then figure out how we can help it, resource it, whatever. So that's, that's what the team here does for the most part is figure out how to make Maine Medical Center successful in large measure and then somewhat also Maine Health when we're focusing outside of Portland. How has this process changed since you first joined the organization? When I first joined, folks would look over to Steve and crowd and say, you guys need to develop a business, you know, a strategic plan. And so what are you, what are you, you know, what are you going to work on? What are you worried about? And um, it was admittedly a little myopic because what we were worried about in that vintage of time had little to do with um, what Maine Medical Center's priorities were or Maine Health. It was mostly how are we going to grow our business? How are we going to grow the MSO? What new services should we think about adding to help our physicians be successful? So it was very oriented to the business, the MSO side of the fence, if you will, um, and much less about trying to worry about a particular patient need or a clinical need. It just wasn't where our heads were. It wasn't our skill set. So I think this is a much better, um, a much better view of the world. Helps us ultimately help patients where before it was a, not a particularly direct route. Prior to your role as the president or CEO, you had worked at the single hospital and practice level. What was it like making the jump to the system level, managing many physician practices, encompassing a large geographic area? Um, it was. 
it was probably easier than it should have been. And I say that because when the MSO formed in 95, it, there wasn't even a health system yet. So it was just being talked about. Uh, hadn't actually been coined yet as main health. And so there was a box that didn't have a name in it. So that's how early on where we were in the scene. So I got to, I had the opportunity to, to watch it develop, start up and develop. And uh, as a leader of, of the MSO, which at that time was a subsidiary of the health system, I sat in all of the main health management team meetings. I was at the first one. And so I got to see the health system figure out what was important to it, got to see it grow, pick up new hospitals, determine its priorities, develop things like mission statements that say we want to be the healthiest state in the... So that... I felt like I was coming into something that didn't even exist yet, so I didn't have the fear of trying to figure out what it was. Everybody was trying to figure out what it was together. Uh, in that vintage of time was a really huge opportunity. MMP now has many primary and specialty care practices throughout Maine. How well do you feel MMP serves the population? Exceptionally well. The um, A challenge we have is that because we want, uh, because we attach so, connect, so directly to Maine Medical Center, its mission is our mission. And so we are committed to and always have take care of all patients who present to us regardless of their ability to pay. Private practices can't do that. They do it in various ways but or not, but they don't have the unending ability to simply absorb the cost of a patient. At some point, they have to shut that access off. So with that it, challenge comes you know, great reward in the form of knowing that we're reaching, you know, as deep as can be reached into this community, taking care of people who really need our help and can't find it anywhere else. We also have certainly the largest group of specialists in the state. And so across our group, we're often the only ones of those in the state. And that has a, a certain responsibility attached to it. So we have to learn how to worry about our environment and our organization at the, t- at the same time we have to worry about all the communities in Maine because that's the only t- way those patients can, can find access to pediatric specialists, for example. We, we've got them all, and so, or certainly the vast number of them. So that, I, I'd say we're, because we view the world through that lens, it unburdens a physician with worrying about things like what insurance somebody has, and it lets them focus exclusively on the patient in front of them, period. I think that's a great endpoint. What are the challenges of recruiting physicians to a state that's very rural in nature? For us, we're blessed because Portland's a nice place to live. It's pretty. May Medical Center is a very successful, big teaching hospital has all of the right appeal to physicians. And so we actually have a pretty good go of recruiting. More often than not, it's relatively easy. It's probably not the right word to use, but relatively easy for us to recruit to almost any specialty we have. You don't have to travel 20 miles away from Portland, and what I just said is completely wrong. And so, you know, as close as Biddeford, or Lewiston, 
the process of recruiting those very same physicians is incredibly challenging and go out beyond 20 miles and it's that again and that again and that again. So um, main struggles with this and it, it, it dovetails back to why it's so important that MMP is good at what it does because we need to be there to pick up pieces often. We need to be there to help communities we sometimes send our physicians to their community when they lose important doctors they have. Um, so we, we have sort of that responsibility, I think. The average age in Maine is more than six years older than the U.S. average. How does this affect the organization as a whole? Um, it hasn't yet, but we talk about it a lot. So that's my editorial on we haven't figured out how yet to get in front of what is a very gray state and worry about things like geriatrics uh, and some of the specialty services that are just very focused on caring for aging patients or aging population. We have those programs. I just feel like we haven't placed them properly relative to the comment, you, the question you just asked. So we all know, because we look at the data and have looked at it for 20 years, that there is a tsunami of, of gray-haired patients who is going to hit us, and it's not that far away, and they have needs, and those needs look like some of the things we do, but they look like a lot of things we don't do. Um, and figuring out how to get ahead of that and how to be proactive, especially in, in geriatrics, which is a very broad area of medical practice, I think is our biggest challenge. Right now, folks are trying to figure out how to balance making money so we can keep the lights on with worrying about the future, and those don't go together well because our friends in Washington and the Medicare program are not aimed at wanting to pay us more money. They're aimed at wanting to pay us less. So that's a challenge. How has the implementation of the ACA affected MMP? It has helped, politics aside, by, by creating ways for patients to have insurance or obtain it. That helped us have greater access, greater compliance, because patients had the confidence they could come for their appointments. Helped get us paid at least some amount of money, where before that money turned in, those bills turned into bad debt because folks didn't have any money to pay their bills, and so it, it, net gain overall, kind of behind it, you know, there's varying opinions on what worked and didn't work, but on the surface, that worked well. There's a large number of Medicare and Medicaid patients. How did Maine's decision not to expand these programs impact MMP? Um, it impacted us because we, we count that group of people, especially the main care population, as the sort of forgotten group. The ACA took care of a certain group of people. The Medicare program picks up a bunch of folks when they hit that age. But there's this gap in the middle that is a whole bunch of folks who don't have the income to even find their way to an ACA option or choose not to because they have psychosocial problems that just prevent them from thinking that through, if you will. And that Medicaid gap is, is a big number. And, and it, we would watch 
we would actually watch the numbers change when we knew that a certain tens of thousands or thousands of patients were going to move into eligibility of main care, we could watch that debt go down and we would see it actually happen. So we knew that it worked. We knew it worked when you took a patient and made them eligible for main care. They started to seek services and we started to have a way to interact with that patient, get paid and not leave them with a, you know, a horrible you know, financial challenge. MMP has been, been making a strong push towards operational excellence. Can you give an overview of the programs that MMP has implemented? Yeah. Uh, so we chased operational excellence um, largely as part of a system, a health system initiative. And it was really around trying to bring change, operational change, as close to the, I'll call it the ground, as we could get it. So our frontline staff being able to have a vehicle to tell us what was broken, to measure it, and then for us as leaders to provide them with resources when they identified things that were broken. Um, we, we had logistical challenges that others didn't have and that were spread around, as, as you guys probably know, uh, something like 75 or 80 offices. And so the ability for us to, to get around to those meant we had to really think hard about how and the who's and the when's of it. Um, but the very notion of it was appealing to me because it, it brought to the people that I think know the most about the work the ability to actually change things, to tell, tell me firsthand what's broken so that we can help them fix it. As part of Operational Excellence, MMP has made Gemba Walks part of its daily routine. Can you describe what a Gemba Walk is and how it's benefited the organization? Yeah, so our Gemba Walks, are, there are nine now walks that cover those 75 or 80 locations. And the walk really allows us to take a leader um, from, uh, usually it's a variety of settings, and to sit and listen to staff describe uh, KPIs, key performance initiatives or indicators uh, that they're tracking that are process improvement steps. Um, and so our leaders cycle every single day through, uh, through all of those sites um, and listen to the performance or the, what's been going on with the, with the KPI board. Um, and from that, we engage that, that staff person in a dialogue around how might we help you. And so there is a, uh, to some extent, there's a fundamental process here that is a high, uh, a high level or leader talking directly with a staff person about something that's broken, looking at the results of the data they've collected, and then in a almost obligatory sort of sense, asking them if there's any help that can be offered to help mitigate the problem. And that's the process, and it's iterative day by day by day. Um, we're likely to, to make some revisions to it. The, we're, we don't have really enough senior leaders to cover that many locations, so we got a bandwidth problem. And more importantly, we're finding that our staff is really signaling back to us that the, the, the notion of these interactions on a daily basis is too much uh, and not as productive for them as might be three, two or three times a week of sitting and having maybe a longer period of time to talk. Right now, these are 
pretty much scripted as one to two minute interactions. So they're very brief, but daily. So we're working through some options that'll, uh, as Monica Russo would say, help it make us uh, make it our own, make some adaptation of OpEx that works for us. But the basic principles will stay the same. They have to. And it's something I'm rather bonded to. So I told folks if I got into it, I would. we weren't going to get off of it. So we'll figure it out. Has getting senior leaders out into practices daily helped tensions between clinical and administrative staff? Yeah, I, I, it may not have helped tensions, but it certainly helped dialogue. So it, gets, it gives us the opportunity real time to get uh, curbsided by staff to say, oh, can I ask you a question? And it might have something to do with that board, but it might not. And so a common problem we have when we survey our staff, because we're so decentralized, usually the number one in, in, uh, employee engagement dissatisfier is, I don't know what's going on in the organization. Um, and that's really hard in our very decentralized medical group. So this has created an opportunity for them to see every day a leader and to get a sense as to who's who and ask those questions. And they do. They take great advantage of the fact that we're out there uh, to say, oh, can I ask you a question about this or what's the latest with that? And so um, I think that's helped. Anytime we can be out in our offices is time well spent. As the CEO, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> um, I worry mostly about the fact that the demand for services, and this isn't even an MMP problem, but it, it's, in, it's, it's a healthcare problem, so now I own it, for us anyway, that the, the services we need to provide don't match with the resources that are going to be available in the future. And that's just all of the textbook knowledge that has told us our GNP, our percent of GNP is out of control, and we've been talking about that for well, since I was in school. We were talking about that, so um, there's a mismatch between demand and cost of service, and how much money people ultimately can pay. And making all that work worries me because this is the most complicated calculus I've ever seen. I thought it was hard in engineering. This is way harder. I also worry a lot about people. I worry about our staff. I, I'm a, my orientation is first and foremost, foremost to our people and worry about making sure that we're not wearing them out, burning them out, underpaying them, not not uh, recognizing the great service they provide us. I mean, it's just a big place spread around in a lot of corners. And so that's usually the stuff I, I worry about. I, I Much else is secondary to that for me. But What would you say are the skills, competencies, and abilities necessary to become the CAO of a large organization like MMP? Good listener. Transparent respect, understand the financials. It's always important. You can't, I would argue you can't be successful regardless of the enterprise and regardless of the track you're in if you don't really understand the finances of the business you're in. 
if it's long-term care, no long-term care finance. Not because anyone's going to ever ask you to build a spreadsheet, but because you in that role exist because that works. So I just think that's vitally important. But I, I think it's, it's relationships, be a collaborator. Collaborate all the time, even when it hurts. Collaborate. If you could go back in time and talk to your 22-year-old self, what advice would you give? Hmm. Um, I would say that I probably could do a better job and should have done a better job preparing myself to be organized. And that's not a Myers-Briggs sort of assessment of myself. It's that there's so much to worry about and do that someone who is in in any leadership or senior leadership role who isn't particularly good at organizing themselves has a significant burden. I know this because that is me. So I am extremely disorganized and work harder as a result of it to get my work done. Um, So it's just a skill set I never paid attention to. And when I see it in other people, I go, oh, I wish I could do that. So let's talk about leadership. What is your leadership philosophy? Um, listen, appreciate, balance. You have to have balance in your life. A lot of people don't. I, I come here and I genuinely care about what the people who work for me do. I care about them as people. I worry about them when they have bad things happen in their life. I go visit them. I probably don't have time to do that, but I do it. And I don't do it because I need somebody to say something nice about me. It's because they have given the better part of their, they give the better part of their life day by day to come and do something for us that's important. And things happen to people. And if you, if you only worry about this piece of it and not this piece of it, you're out of balance. So to me, there's just balance. You know, collaborating is just, I can't say that enough. I, I, I just think that's the world we live in. That's the healthcare world we live in. We're forced to have different kinds of relationships, call it dyad, call it whatever you want. It's all collaboration. It's working closely with people who do things different, do different things than you do, but you both contribute to a good end. So, um, so that's, that's mostly what I think about when I think about why I lead things what matters to me. What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader and how do you aspire to those yourself? I always listen first. Did I say listen enough times? Um, I start every single thing I do listening. And I, I quite frankly judge people who don't do that. Or at least I quickly form opinions on how hard it's going to be for me to collaborate with them. <laughs> but... It's just a message you send when you're willing to let somebody describe their perspective or why they're here to see you. Or you know, listening is how you learn. There's no other way to learn, and I think doing that has, first of all, taught me a lot. But second of all, it it kind of quickly gets me to respect because people appreciate the fact that they could tell their tale or make their case. And so it's a simple it's a simple thing to do. Sometimes it's you know, not what you want to hear, but it's a simple thing to physically do, sit and listen to someone. And 
I think it just starts our relationship on a good on a good foot. So, who did you learn your leadership philosophy from? My father. He was a good listener, very good listener, and uh, most most everyone that I've tended to pay close attention to and or hold out as someone I would emulate uh, has the ability to do that. It, you know, they tend to have that characteristic. Now, that's probably because it's my bias. I, I line up with them, but uh, you know, I can I I pay attention to leaders that are influential and have done a good job in their careers, and that's a not an uncommon feature. So, I've, but mostly my father. Give us an example of a difficult leadership lesson you had to learn the hard way. Uh, I learned that when you try to um, when you try to do the right what you believe is the right thing in the form of protecting somebody from a change, the odds are pretty good it's going to bite you in the long run because you can't stop a change. So an example would be um, when we made some big changes in the organization and moved people from employment and MMP as a true employer to put them all into Maine Medical Center because we wanted to consolidate benefits in HR, there were some differences. And so I was fierce about wanting to protect the differences for the staff, things like uh, paid time off, the amount of accrual, or the fact that they didn't pay for parking, for example. In MMP, didn't require that an employee pay for parking, but in Maine Medical Center, they pay for parking regardless where they park. So I was successful, quote, unquote, in having those things not, you know, carry over as, as differences, which was fine, except that when all the new people came, they looked like everyone else in Maine Medical Center and didn't have that enjoyment of different PTO or not paying for parking, which then creates an inequity in your organization that, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And so um, things like that, you know, equity is is just super difficult to manage to, but um, you have to, it taught me to stop and think about future state a little better and not worry so much about the in the minute, you know, protection of my staff. Because that was a good example where I actually did some harm in the long run, so. What do you look for when choosing leaders? Well, I look for people with, uh, that I believe have a, a complete orientation to team, aren't particularly motivated by their you know, personal aspirations or even necessarily their career path, though you really want that. Ultimately, I don't want that to be the driving force. Big surprise, I like people who appear to have good listening skills. And other than that, I sort of look for personality traits that's just me and, you know, features that I know match up with well with my style. Um, but that's that's more me and not management 101. That's just me trying to stack a deck with folks that I know connect well. But, but definitely those other things are really important to me. Team is important. We Too many opportunities for wildcats to go running off making names for themselves and all of a sudden we're in 10 different directions and we don't have time for 10 directions. So, 
What about when evaluating leaders? I'm terrible at that. So that's my that's one of my weak spots is is performance evaluations. I'm just simply not good at it. But I'm looking for those things. So I'm looking for the evidence that in the goals that that person accomplished, which presumably align with MMP's goals, how do, how good a job did they do bringing our team together? How did they, you know, what resources did they draw in to do their work? We have a lot of overachievers here. It's a good thing and a bad thing, but we have folks who will simply pick up work and do it, and they'll do it and do it and do it. And that's great until the bus comes by and picks them off or the train hits them. It doesn't leave you with an organization that knows how to do the work. And so I'm, I'm all about making sure that there's a group of people who really problem solve. We problem solve as a group a lot, maybe more than we should. But I know that in the absence of any one of us, folks can pick up and keep going. And I think that's just important for any organization to worry about. What are the most common mistakes of junior leaders? Uh, racing to the end, to the conclusion. <laughs> so, and it, and it's almost unfair to say it because you you got to live through that experience to learn it. But um, I think I think any junior leader is just doesn't have the benefit of getting their knees skinned or you know making a decision that they got to reflect on as probably not being a good one. So. Um, so that the mistakes get made is part of the process. I guess, I, I guess ultimately it's those folks who take those and turn them into new, new action, you know, better ways of doing business, if you will. Those are the successful folks, the ones who sort of rinse, repeat their way through a, a you know, skills or, or a style. Um, that's rate limiting. I think those those folks will always find homes in the organization, but they'll tend to bounce around. They won't embed in a team. What is organizational culture and why is it important? Yeah, it's vitally important. So it's the thing we most have to work on with our new president. I'm hoping that our new president comes and sticks to that like whatever the strongest adhesive there is in the world because it's, it's the place where we're, it's our weak spot. We have, I think, a strong culture within the administrative ranks, um, so I can speak more directly to that, that is one that we prop each other up. So it's, if you want to call it team or I've got your back, call it what you want, but this, this administrative organization works extremely well together, and I, I have zero, zero folks in my office talking to me about some worry about a coworker in this administrative office. Never hap never happens. That's unheard of. And it's just because culturally we work together very tightly and the common goal is the common goal. And so uh, it's taken a long time to find people who think like that, but that's what this, this organization is. So how do successful leaders shape organizational culture? Live it. It's just how you, it's how you are as a human. I am often critical about things that are flavor of the month, meaning you know values or you know, and it's not that they aren't bad 
things to worry about. They're the great things to worry about, but they don't install as quickly as organizations want them to install. Here are our new values. You know, they're on a piece of paper, and you know, we keep sticking them in front of you, and eventually, you'll you'll stick to them. Um, it takes way longer than that, and it, and I believe personally, I believe it's it's how you come to the job you're in. It's how you were brought up. It's how you live your life. It's what you do when you go home. It looks no different at home than it does at work. Those are the things that are important to you. So, to me, that's that's what that stuff's about. So. Um, but I recognize that organizations need to package it. And so the, for us, the colored circles with the values is our packaging of that. But it's how people live their lives. What does a good mentor do? A good mentor helps you realize or is, is transparent with regard to the things that you do, that an individual does that they need to stop doing. They're weak spots. I've... I've relied on people to tell me when I'm off track. I've relied on them to get thorny with me when they need to. I I don't mind somebody yelling at me when I need to be yelled at. That's probably a little strong, but you know that critique is really important. And a good mentor knows how to do that. Knows how to call out those weaknesses and, and identify those strengths and kind of move this one up and this one down. And so. It's a sounding board. It's an ear. Very valuable. How important is the mentor relationship? You know, for, for some folks, you'd, the, the, you'd never see it. So there are folks who will go through their careers and never describe to you a mentor that they actually spent any measurable amount of time with. And it might mean they didn't need it or it might be they didn't care. But there are plenty of folks who just don't who don't go down a mentor track. I would say I've not formally had any mentor, meaning I haven't gone through an exercise like some do and actually you know, check in with regularly an individual or even beyond that, pay someone to be your mentor. <laughs> um, I haven't done that, but I have my, I'll call them informal folks that I rely on as my sounding board. So when I think I'm off track, I go, okay, ground me. Here's what I think. And I get, I know I get back an answer that is a good one, one I can rely on. So I just think that stuff's vitally important. Do you mentor other leaders now? Uh, other than other than folks in this office, and again, I would, I would say in informal fashion, no, I would love to. So I've made it clear to the medical center if they ever started such a formal program, they could sign me up as many times as they wanted to. If you had to pick one book that early careerists who aspire to be a senior leader should read, what would it be? I would, um, I don't know if I can get to a book, but I can get to an author. I think in current times, Atul Gawande is probably the most influential healthcare leader we have right now. And, and having lived through cycles of folks who got described as that, who were not physicians, by the way, um, he, he's so far out in front of those folks, it isn't funny, and has, a, I think, a very good way of taking this stuff down to a common denominator. It's, he, he has found all the basic problem 
uh, basic problems in the health industry, not not meaning there are easy answers, but he's found them for us. And so I, I, anything he writes short or long, I, I read it and always get something out of it. I, I just think he's a, a man for this for our times right now and change. What advice do you have to early careers to aspire to lead a healthcare organization, perhaps a system like MMP? Be a good listener. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say um, be prepared to work hard. It's hard work. I, you know, I worry a lot about folks like you guys because I, I see how hard it is now compared to when I started. What I thought was hard work then, or, or I should say what I thought was challenge then, is nothing compared to today. So the things we worried about 25 years ago as being the new rules at Medicare that were coming out that we had to figure out how to adapt to, absolutely nothing compared to the challenges of today, So, which I can only imagine then become you know even greater challenges of tomorrow. So it's hard work. It's really hard work. So figuring out how to step into it and knowing it's going to be a challenging industry. We, You guys have watched. We work hard around here. You know, the hours are long. Part of that is because our physician, our role with physician forces some funny hours. Uh, physicians like early. So we adapt to that. Um, so it just comes with the territory. But now here's the other side of it. Do all that and figure out how to balance your, your life and figure out how to have a family and figure out how to do those other important things because you can't you can't have one or the other in my mind you can't have one or the other lots of people try <laughs> um, it's a recipe for disaster so um, that that to me is that's a that's a huge challenge for you guys because this is this is really heavy lifting um, but you got to figure out how to have a life too that's I have that conversation every day with people around here, trying to make sure that they have a life, too. So, Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Appreciate all the questions. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.